From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, October 29th. I'm heading to Glasgow for COP26, so I've enlisted our roundtable regulars to help me prepare for what is being billed as the most important global climate summit since at least Paris in 2015. Imogen Rose-Smith is an Impact Alpha contributing editor. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And David Bank is Impact Alpha's editor-in-chief. Hi, David. Hey, Brian. Hey, Imogen. But before we dig into that conversation, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. The pandemic has spurred innovation in healthcare around the world. One example of an emergency need turned long-term solution is Oxygen Hub, which helps local entrepreneurs in Africa supply medical oxygen to health clinics and hospitals. Johnson & Johnson Impact Ventures is sponsoring Impact Alpha's coverage of investments in health for underserved communities. Corporate buyers are creating demand for green solutions. By committing in advance to purchase sustainable aviation fuel, or captured carbon, companies like American Airlines and Microsoft are helping suppliers scale up and drive down costs. On Impact Alpha's Agents of Impact call earlier this week, Breakthrough Energy's Jonah Goldman explained how their billion-dollar catalyst fund is helping broker such off-take agreements. The fundamental problem is the fact that the technologies that we're using right now are non-differentiated from the technologies that we want in their primary purpose. And so uh, let's take sustainable aviation fuel. Obviously, the only true value once you actually get fuel into a plane is that the plane stays flying and lands and runs as we want it to. So the sustainability part of sustainable aviation fuel is not particularly important once you get it in the plane. Employee-owned businesses have outperformed in the pandemic in pay, benefits, and workplace safety. Employees that own a stake in their worker-owned companies, like King Arthur Flower or Recology, have higher wages and net worth and lower unemployment in a downturn. In a guest post on Impact Alpha, Candida Fund's Diane Ives argued that helping businesses transition to employee ownership is among the most immediate ways impact investors can support workers and communities. And this was another big week of deals and fund raises. Biomilk raised $21 million for lab-grown, it says here, breast milk. 50 years, the deep tech high-impact venture firm raised $90 million for its third fund. Generation, the investment firm founded by Al Gore and David Blood, launched a spin-off company, Just Climate, to invest in solutions for hard-to-decarbonize heavy industries. And finally, Jay-Z's impact-focused investment firm, Marcy Venture Partners, closed its second fund at $325 million. Impact Alpha subscribers got all of these stories and more in their email each day this week. Speaking of big pimpin', now it's time for our roundtable discussion. COP26, the UN's climate conference, is taking place in the coming days in Glasgow, Scotland. David, isn't every COP supposed to be the most important COP ever? Why is this one important? Well, yes, they're all important, you know, until they're not, you know, and it depends whether anything happens. This one is being touted as very important, again, because um, in particular, the U.S. is back in the agreement that was struck at Paris um, after President Trump briefly pulled 
the U.S. out. So the expectations were, you know, U.S. returns to climate leadership was the six month ago or so framing for this. And then more importantly, this was supposed to be the year and this 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 COP was supposed to take place last year, but was delayed because of the pandemic. Five years after the Paris Agreement, that countries were going to ratchet up um, what's called their nationally determined contributions or NDCs, as you'll hear in the next few days. As they got more comfortable with their clean energy transitions and other plans, as prices came down, they were going to have a big ratchet, as they said, of their of their plans, and then um, you know get their get their national plans in line with this goal of keeping uh, uh, temperature rise um, not just to the two degree that Paris uh, called for, but to a one point five degree Celsius um, increase that is the really the the goal for and the really the the requirement for averting a lot of, you know, climate um, disaster. So, you know, there's kind of tempered expectations going into it. People are saying there's sort of a global ambition gap. Things have to move faster, you know, and all that. Um, but uh, hope springs eternal. Hope springs eternal indeed, as our resident optimist, David. Now, Imogen, as our resident, uh, let's say, uh, person with a critical eye on some of these issues, uh, what are you concerned about going into COP? I mean, the obvious concern is, yeah, that nothing happens, right? That little or no consensus is reached, everyone falls out, and no progress is made. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, for example, that, you know, the Global South needs more support in achieving its climate goals, and that they were promised all this money, and that none of it has come through. And so the UN is saying, you know, in order for this COP to be successful, that has to be taken into account, that that the poorer countries have to have a significant seat at the table and and have to there has to be support in terms of how we figure out how we're going to finance this clean energy transition. So I think the big concern is that those kind of conversations don't happen. I don't think you no know, I don't think Russia not being there is a particularly negative point, right? I don't think anyone's really worried about that. I think there's an outstanding question. They're not worried because they didn't expect much anyway from them. Well, exactly. And and it's not like Russia's really shown itself to be, you know, a a good global player on the world stage. The US coming back is a huge deal. There's obviously a lot of concern and anxiety around what does that mean? What what does Biden bring? What what can he bring to the meeting? What can he offer? I think, you know, the the domestic, obviously, political concerns in the US um, severely restrict what the US can do. But I also think that the UK is really anxious for this to be, to have a big win, right? They're politically incentivized to want this to succeed, to show that they can be a world player and show that they can do sort of something equal to Paris. The clearest line of sight available is, you know, getting real pledges and real commitments around financing the green transition. Um, And the likelihood is that a lot of that is going to have to come from the private sector because the public sector doesn't have any money and lacks political will. So I think, you know, to bring it full circle, you will see pressure on banks, pressures on allocators, pressures on investors to be the ones that step up and start providing this this funding. And my concern is obviously that it's a lot of hot air and a lot of empty commitments that at the end of the day result in very little change. And and what happens if the commitments aren't made? Is it just uh, kind of 
international egg on your face, or are there any kind of uh, teeth to enforce these commitments? No, there's, there's, I think no, no teeth as, as I understand it, other than, as you say, you know, your own reputation. But I think that what was supposed to happen, and I frankly don't understand, well, I do know because we, we went through four years of resistance on this, but what was supposed to happen was that, as I said, the momentum towards the clean energy transition would gather so much speed that the goals set in Paris would seem not just, you know, in, inadequate to the climate challenge, but sort of um, insufficient to the climate opportunity because, you know, the, the incentives would all sort of swing to the other side. And, um, you know, there is some sense again, and again, you know, hope springs eternal, some sense that, you know, capital wants this transition to happen. There's so much to invest in, to retrofit, to rebuild, um, that there's, you know, just a, a sort of you know, corporations want to get on on the side of us. You saw the, you know, all the GM announcements about electric vehicles and Hertz's purchase of of a hundred thousand Teslas. I mean, you know, the corporate side wants to get on with it. Finance side wants to get on with it. And then, as Imogen said, at least some governments, mostly UK, Europe, and others, want to get on with it. And the US, at least on paper, wants to get on with it. So um, when all that gets lined up, you know, things could start to move very fast. Um, it's just maybe not quite yet. I do think there has been a momentum shift. I think that if you think about where we were um, in Paris and COP21 and where we are today, there, there, there has been a change. Like even with, even with sort of four, lo- four, four lost years of the Trump administration, you know, if we think about how ESG has become part of the mainstream conversation, if you think about you know the successful activist campaign against Exxon in an effort to force that company to pivot to renewables, something which nobody thought anyone could do. The fact that, like, you know, activist hedge fund manager Dan Loeb is now, you know, using the language of ESG in a campaign to get Shell to change its business. Like, these are not things that anyone anyone was even thinking about five years ago. And so, I and there's, you know, there's more investable opportunities there, there is there is more incentive for people to act. So I, I think that there has been a temperament change. Does that result in? D- does that lead to a successful cop? Much harder to tell. But I, but I do think. That, and and is the transition happening fast enough? A hundred percent no. But but it does feel like at least that the train has is pretty far out of the station at this point. I think that's right, Imogen. And, you know, we, we've talked before about humans being a storytelling animal, right? And we we tell stories to each other. And I, I do think that the narrative around climate change has has shifted fundamentally, I think, as to, to play on your uh, train analogy. I do think the train has left the station. So the optimist take here is there. there's no going back to a pre-Paris world, right? The, the the fundamental shifts have happened in the narrative that climate change is real and that there are real opportunities to uh, make the changes necessary to avert the worst effects of global warming, even though we are already experiencing uh, the serious effects of global warming today. It's, it's, it's a clear and present reality of, of our current situation. But I do think the fundamental dynamic has shifted and that the future of 
finance will be sustainable finance. And I think that the even if the what comes out of this specific COP will inevitably be disappointing to many people who always want to see more action, and I would put myself in that uh, in that category. But I think that we need to take the big picture perspective and say that the fundamental realignment of the economy um, and uh, of policy is is moving in fundamentally the right direction. And so even if um, there might be one step back, uh, we are going two steps forward overall. But Imogen, you, you always help bring us uh, back to earth and, and ground us in, in the reality. Uh, so so where, where do you see this, this moving? Look, I think the problem is we took a massive step back with Trump, right? We lost really another four years of, you know, I think the, the low point was probably, you know, the cop in Poland where they have like four mile long shafts for coal mines, right? Like we, we lost four years really of momentum and pressure to finance the climate transition. So in a sense, this is really like a make or break meeting for the whole COP mission because it has to show the relevancy of the COP to the process. Um, and so that makes it really sort of vital that, that something tangible comes out of this. And David, where do you see, you know, th there are lots of different actors involved in COP. Um, and where do you see uh, the the greatest room for for movement coming? Well, like 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 Imogen said, the UK has staked out a big leadership position, not just because they're the host of the meeting, but because their their climate plan is, I think, among the most ambitious in the world. And in fact, they've reduced their uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, quite significantly already. And and Europe is also quite aggressive. And then the Biden pledge to reductions is not quite as ambitious as either the European or the UK, but certainly a, a big step, even a big step beyond where um, where President Obama was. So the ambitions are ramping up. Um, the other thing I would say, which bears uh, some, um, you know, just notice and, and, you know, things obviously haven't moved fast enough or not moving fast enough. But when we were back at the Paris timeframe, the projections were that the world was headed towards something like a four degree Celsius increase. Now we're headed towards something like a 2.7 degree Celsius increase. So again, not as low as the either the two degrees and certainly not at the one and a half degrees. But it does show that concerted effort, global effort, you know, continued investment, continued in innovation can bend the curve and we can make headway. The, you know, greenhouse gas emissions globally are still going up, but they're not going up as fast. When once they start going down again, I mean, sort of the only hope left is once they start going down, they can go down very quickly. I mean, the counterpoint to that, right, is the global response to COVID, you know, minus Texas and Florida, demonstrates that the world can move quickly when called upon to do so. We choose not to when it comes to climate change, because even though the effects are being felt, you know, we're basically a frog in boiling water and, and we choose only to do it incrementally and likely will not get our act together fast enough until there are more COVIDs, which there will be because of climate change. So I'm not as optimistic on that one. I want to just, um, just, just, just make the other obvious point, which is that, you know, the politics of this have to, are some sense lagging. As you said, Brian, the future is, is sort of clear, but the politics haven't quite caught up. And, you know, we saw that in the U.S. with the opposition of one senator to, you know, what would be far-reaching, more far-reaching climate 
proposals and there's obviously opposition in other countries, you know, when things happen or if gas prices happen to go up or what have you. But the real politics and, and younger generations and whatnot are all moving towards, you know, much more aggressive action. And I think there's kind of a, la a lag moment here before the dam breaks and the pressure, you know, to move faster, you know, gets gets even even stronger. So, you know, again, you, know, you got to hope for something. Like, I don't think it's one senator from West Virginia that, that's holding the Democrats back from a massive win in climate policy. I think that he actually gives cover to a lot of other potential senators and congressional representatives who are not necessarily as comfortable. Well, not to mention change. the 50 people in the other in the other party. No, I didn't mean to say it was just one. I'm just saying as a representation that there is resistance. I think it's an important point, because if you look at the electoral map, I don't see how the Democratic Party holds the Senate and passes the the type of climate change legislation that's needed, because so many states have a large dependency on fossil fuels. And so I think that the political realities, and maybe you say, okay, so Democrats keep the White House and the House and they lose the Senate and you get there that way. But I think the sort of the political election chess of how this plays out is actually very difficult for Democrats. I, I don't disagree with any of that. I'm just saying that, that you got to sort of build a constituency behind the, the new thing so that it can appear to be and, and in fact, really be, you know, the better alternative, not just for some elite enviros as it used to be considered, but actually the, you know, the path forward for the whole economy, for good jobs and everything else. And that politics has to get built and then it has to become the obviously the majority and the supermajority political strain. I'm not saying we're there yet, obviously. And as long as we're piling on the challenges, that's just in the U.S., there's still China, uh, which has become the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, and they have their own energy crisis going on, and they um, are probably coming out against a net zero emissions target by 2050. I think they did commit to 2060, but not to 2050. India, um, also a big polluter. Uh, Russia, as we've covered as well. So it's 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 not just the challenges of uh, a certain senator from the state of West Virginia in the U.S. There are among the biggest emitters, um, lots of uh, lots of challenges all over the world. I heard um, former Vice President Gore uh, the other day um, quote uh, what what I hadn't known the name of. I had sort of known the concept Dornbush's law. Apparently, there's a German economist named Rudy Dornbush whose whose precept says things always take longer than you expect for them to happen, but once they do, they move more quickly than you ever thought they could. Oh, I, I like that. That's Dornbush's Dorn law. law. Well. Um, it, it sounds like this conversation took longer than expected, but I think it's actually moved along quite quite faster than I expected. <laughs> Not quite right, but sure. <laughs> um, well, that's going to do it for your impact briefing this week. Thank you so much, David and Imogen. Thank you. Thank you both. More all day, every day at impactalpha.com. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily newsletter brief. Podcast listeners get $100 off their first year subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Imogen Rose-Smith and David Bank, as well as our fearless producer, Isaac Silk. I'm Brian Walsh, head of sustainability for the capital markets firm, TPICAP. Until next time, take good care. <laughs>